Proverbs chapter 6. We'll be focusing on verses 16 to 23, and then later on verses 16 and 17 in the message. Proverbs 6, beginning of verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And go with me again to Proverbs chapter 6. Dr. Harry Ironside was pastor of the 4,000-member Moody Church in Chicago during the early 1900s. This would be during the period of Prohibition, the Great Depression. Chicago was one wild city in those days. <laughs> Still is. Dr. Ironside, at one point during his ministry, was concerned about pride in his heart, and, and he resolved to intentionally pursue humility. So he went to an older friend, and he asked him if he had any suggestions for how to grow in humility. And the friend said, yeah, make a big poster with the plan of salvation in Scripture written on it, and go to downtown Chicago and walk around with that poster all day long. Well, to his credit, this pastor of one of the early megachurches did just that. He made the poster, he walked around downtown all day long, and it was truly a humiliating experience. As most people mocked him or avoided him. And like many of us, he was relieved to get home to end and finish this exercise in humility. And just as he was putting down his big gospel poster in his home, the thought went through his mind, you know what, I'll bet there's not another person in Chicago who would have done that. Pride is so deceitful, isn't it? We can be proud of our humility. Pride is dangerous because it's just that subtle, and it's so hard to kill. And yet this subtle sin, as we heard, is absolutely detestable to God. And it is consistently damaging to our interpersonal relationships. So it is crucial to our spiritual health and the good of those around us that we recognize this sin and resist it. So today we're going to be looking at what Proverbs says about pride's destructiveness in three areas, the horizontal, the personal, and the vertical. Rather simple outline, three points. Point number one, fear pride because God detests it. 
Point number two, fear pride because it is self-destructive. And point number three, fear pride because it damages relationships. Okay, so let's start with the, the vertical, fear pride because God detests it. Proverbs pulls no punches, proclaiming God's hatred of pride. We saw earlier in Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. And it's like Solomon says, well, while I'm thinking about it, there are seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. You know, if you think about Jesus' teaching, especially His parables, is there a more disgusting figure in all of His teaching than the Pharisee boasting of his goodness before God while the tax collector beats his chest and begs for mercy. And isn't it ironic here in Proverbs 6, that proud Pharisee would boast, what, that he's not like the liars, he's not like the murderers, he's not like the strife spreaders, he's not like the adulterers, and yet here he's lumped in with them. In fact, he is first on the list of what God hates. Proverbs warns that pride is sin, and it is a primary characteristic of the wicked. Again, we're going to a lot of Proverbs. You can keep up if you'd like. You can jot them down and check me later. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart the lamp of the wicked is sin. Notice pride is the lamp of the wicked. Their own self-importance is the guiding principle. It is the dominant characteristic by which they view all of life. And again in Proverbs 16, verse 5, Proverbs warns us that pride is a disgusting, detestable thing in God's sight, and He will deal with it accordingly. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Why do you think God hates pride so much? C.S. Lewis called pride a complete anti-God state of mind. God hates pride because it contradicts His character. God hates pride because it corrupted His creation. God hates pride because it defies His commands. God hates pride because it killed His Son. God hates pride in His children because it resists His sanctifying work. God hates pride in His children because it harms others in the family. And those are just a few reasons why God hates pride. Charles Bridges, British pastor in the early 1800s, said, How ugly is this sin! A creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, yet proud in his heart. Truly we are children of a fallen parent who dreamed to be like God and made himself like the devil. 
Nothing distorts God's image in us like pride. God is the only perfect being, and yet He is also the most humble being. So, of course, He values humility, and of course, He detests pride. We read from Philippians 2 earlier. Ray Ortland gives such a helpful contrast between us and Christ and a painful one. He points out that we often exalt ourselves while God the Son gladly stepped down. We usually think there's nothing too good for us. There was nothing too low for God the Son. We often fight for importance. God the Son made Himself nothing as a servant. We so carefully measure our obedience, trying to maintain control. God, the Son, freely obeyed to the point of a shameful death on a cross, holding nothing back. What could be more anti-Christ than pride or self-promotion? Well, not only does nothing distort God's image in us like pride, nothing defies God's lordship and law like our pride. The first sin committed in the universe was Satan's pride. He wanted God's throne. He wanted God's worship. And he tempted our first parents with the same pride. You can be your own God. You can be independent. You can decide your own morality. C.J. Mahaney uses a phrase from Charles Bridges to define pride He calls it contending for supremacy with God. That's what our pride is. (laughs) Fighting with God for supremacy. Pride is attempting to assume the status and the position of God to proclaim ourselves Lord. We claim His throne. We see ourselves as the greatest good in the universe. And that desire to claim God's throne corrupted all of creation. Our relationship with God was broken. Our personal identities deformed. Our relationships with others deeply damaged. We should fear pride. We should grieve over pride. We should flee pride. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus' death to suffer the punishment for your pride, you will suffer eternal judgment for your own pride. That ought to terrify you. And if you are trusting in Christ, if you are God's child this morning, your pride displeases Him. And it caused the death of your Savior. Doesn't that grieve you and I enough? Doesn't it motivate us to flee it? We should fear pride because God detests it. We should also fear pride because it is self-destructive. Here in Proverbs 16, go down to verse 18 with me. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
That combination of pride and haughty, it, it carries the idea of just what it sounds like, being high, being lifted up, an exalted self-image. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought, which is just what Romans 12 warns us against. And that self-exaltation precedes stumbling or destruction, literally being broken, being shattered like a bone. My son broke two bones as a child, and ironically, both times he was pretending to be a superhero. The first time, I think he was only two years old, had a little cape on and tried to fly off the back of the couch like Superman, broke his collarbone. The second time, he was Batman, climbing up the outside of a staircase, holding onto the railing, jumped down and broke his arm. Both times, pretending to be someone he wasn't, pretending to be stronger than he was, and doing something at a height that was unsafe. It's a pretty good illustration of this verse in Proverbs 16. The safe place in God's kingdom, the wise place in God's world, is not the high and haughty place, it's the low place. It's walking in submission to His Word. It's walking in dependence on Him. But we have this tendency to start pretending we have God-like powers. And we start trusting our own wisdom. We start trusting our own strength. And we climb higher and higher to prove our independence, our self-sufficiency, and that's when the fall comes. And often things get broken. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. With pride comes dishonor. This word pride is often translated arrogant presumption. Remember remember Nebuchadnezzar? I hope Anthony's series through Daniel is still fresh in our minds. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel's reminding arrogant Belshazzar of the hard lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Daniel 5, beginning in verse 18. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the people's nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. 
God in His providence allowed Nebuchadnezzar to violently conquer nation after nation. When did God come down hard on Nebuchadnezzar? The moment he arrogantly took credit for all that God had given him. Nebuchadnezzar's pride cost him a humiliating season of dishonor. Belshazzar's pride cost him his life. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Humility goes before honor. Self-exaltation, self-promotion ends in disaster. Humility leads to honor. Question, is it wrong to desire honor? Well, here we're going to see some similarities with the subject of wealth a couple of weeks ago. Wealth is good when it is gained the right way. Selfishly seeking wealth is wrong, right? Proverbs warned us, don't go after wealth, but rather faithfully work and let God prosper as He wills. It is wrong to selfishly seek honor and praise and affirmation, but those things are good when they are gained the right way. Listen to the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will render eternal life. How do we seek glory and honor? Paul says perseverance in doing good. And he's later going to explain that that is a life of faith in Jesus Christ. It is a life trusting in the glory and honor of another, and then we share in it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the pattern of Proverbs 18.12. The humbling trials come first, and persevering in those trials leads to sharing in the honor of another the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ when He is revealed. Isn't that the pattern of Philippians 2? Christ humbled in the incarnation, humbled again, taking the form of a servant, humbled again and ultimately in shameful death, and then honored with a name above every name. Christians, you are going to share in that honor on the day of judgment when proud rebels who refused His grace are judged. There's no need to seek your own honor right now. Romans 8 promises that God's final goal in our salvation is what? Glorification. 
He will glorify us in His Son on that day. There's no need to seek our own glory now. So we've seen that God detests pride. We've seen that pride is self-destructive. One more word of caution before we move to the horizontal relationship. Go back to Proverbs with me, please. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Do you remember that sluggard we looked at a while back who is blind to his own laziness? The proud are in the same danger. Rather than seeking or listening to counsel, they are sure they're right, they're confident, their own thoughts and motives are completely trustworthy. And then listen to Proverbs 30, verses 12 and 13. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. How terrible, how tragic to proudly think you are pure by your own standard and you're blind to the filthiness of your pride in God's sight. So how do we know if we're proud? How do you know if you're proud? I mean, really, most of us have the good sense and the self-awareness not to go around bragging on ourselves, right? I mean, that... Come on, that's a little obvious. That's a little telltale. But there are some other telltale signs. And some books like C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility, and Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, and I highly recommend both, they can help us see other signs. For example, are you easily irritated and angry? That's a good sign you're proud. You have an inflated view of your own self-importance. Do you tend to be critical of others? That's a good sign you're proud. You have an inflated view of your own goodness and correctness. Do you tend to be ungrateful? Do you grumble often? That's a good sign you're proud. You have a warped idea of what you think you deserve. Are you a worrier? Yes, that's a good sign you're proud. You're pretending to be self-sufficient. And then circumstances prove you're not. Do you tend to dominate conversations? Or do you ask questions and listen actively? If you dominate, that's a good sign you're proud. You have an inflated view of the value of your own thoughts, and you think everybody else should hear them. Are you considerate? Are you helpful? If not, that's a good sign you're proud. You tend to be oblivious to others in your obsession with yourself. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray that the Lord would show us where this obnoxious weed of pride hides in our hearts and plead with Him to pluck it out by the roots. Now, our third point, which I told you last week is really just a continuation of last week's sermon on friendship. We should fear pride because of its damage to relationships. 
Now, in this point, we're going to move from the negative, what pride does in relationships, primarily manifested in anger, and we're going to move from that to the positive, how to be a humble friend or spouse or brother or sister. Proverbs 28, 25. Proverbs 28, 25. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Do you hear the contrast? What's the opposite of arrogant? One who trusts in the Lord. And when you are not trusting in the Lord, when you're not trusting in the unconditional love of your Lord for you, when you're not trusting in the wise providence of the Lord for you, then we assert our self-importance. Then we force our agenda on others. Then we retaliate for any offense real or imagined. Strife is the usual result of pride. So Proverbs warns us, don't be so touchy. Don't be so touchy. Proverbs over and over and over warns against getting angry quickly, having a temper, and praises self-control that is slow to anger. Proverbs 14, verse 29. We'll start there. Proverbs 14, 29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. You know that type of friendship, if you were here last week, that type of friendship we talked about? Or, Or in a marriage, or in a family, or in this church family, we spend enough time together, we're going to annoy one another. We're going to offend one another. Because we're not yet fully sanctified. And then if you remember, Proverbs exhorted us last week to speak truth that hurts to one another. Uh Uh-oh, now we're increasing the risk of offense among a bunch of people that are not yet fully sanctified. And some of us are just really good at turning minor offenses into major ones as our pride overreacts. Proverbs 15, 18 is a good reminder. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Wait, what, what stirs up strife? The issue of disagreement? The stressful situation? the offense that's been committed, all those things we usually blame? No. The issue itself, the situation of stress, the offense doesn't cause the strife. Proverbs is clear, the angry person causes the strife. And the root of most of our anger is pride. I've been embarrassed. I've been inconvenienced. Because you so inconsiderately didn't give in to my agenda. Now, going back to our topic of friendship last week, the need to speak the truth that hurts. Well, if, if, if we begin to deepen friendships and that really happens, sometimes they're going to speak something that's just plain true and it hurts. Do you know what? Sometimes the correction they offer won't be the whole truth. Maybe your friend perceived it wrongly. Maybe the correction was misplaced. Maybe they said it in the wrong attitude. 
But please, whether they got it right or wrong, they loved you enough to try. Remember that phrase from last week, the wounds of a friend? Literally, the wounds of one who loves are trustworthy. They're reliable. And remember that distinction we pointed out last week. There's a difference between hurting you and harming you. And if you don't understand that, if you think that all hurt is harmful, you're going to be great at playing the victim. You're going to cry foul whenever a friend or a spouse confronts you. And whether the offense is real or imagined, you're going to blame them and you're going to retaliate to punish. And you will likely remind them, maybe more than once, how they've wronged you. Or you're going to tell others how you've been wronged. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Repeating can either be bringing it up again and again to your friend or your spouse, or it can be repeating it to somebody else. So it's either nagging or it's slander. You don't let love cover it. You don't discuss it until you reach a solution. You just keep reminding. Or you tell others in order to embarrass and to punish. It separates intimate friends. This is the strongest word in Proverbs, again, for that word friend. That's why the New American Standard says intimate friends. Proverbs reminding us again, an unwillingness to forgive, a tendency to nag or to slander, can ruin the closest friendships, can ruin a close marriage. Some of you May, I I doubt many of you, but maybe there's one or two who remember my car alarm illustration from my sermon in 1 Corinthians 13 years and years ago. Right? It's incredibly annoying, isn't it, when a car alarm goes off and, and it just keeps going, right? Just on and on. And you keep waiting for somebody to hit that button and turn it off, and they don't. The car alarm's just going. And the person here in Proverbs, they sound like that. They just keep repeating, I've been hurt, I've been wronged, I've been hurt, I've been wronged, I've been hurt, I've been wronged. Don't be that person. Proverbs 17, 27, He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Ray Ortland points out that anger is a judging emotion, right? We're, we're passing judgment. It is a response to something we perceive is wrong. And yes, Brother Luke, you know, preaching in, in Ephesians, pointed out there is a righteous anger against true moral wrong, against defiance of God, but most often we're angry because we feel wrong. And wisdom judges our judging. Wisdom pauses and says, am I right to feel angry right now? And what should I do with that anger? And Proverbs says that one who practices that kind of self-evaluation and self-restraint is mightier than a conquering general. 
Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. All right, Proverbs says, don't be so touchy. Positively, seek peace. Strife is the fruit of pride. Peace is the fruit of humility. Proverbs 11.2. We looked at this earlier. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. That word pride here is the root word that means to boil up. Okay, a proud, a heart full of pride easily boils up and boils over in dishonorable speech or behavior, or it boils over with dishonor on the other person. You criticize, you cut down, but a humble heart doesn't boil so easily. It's just not defensive. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. (laughs) Any fool will quarrel. Avoiding quarrels shows honorable character. And this proverb highlights the irony of somebody we would label defensive, right? Somebody who's easily offended, somebody who's quick to defend themselves is fighting a losing battle. Why? Because Proverbs says their behavior proves their character is not worth defending. Listen to another warning from Proverbs about strife and quarreling. Proverbs 17, verse 14. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. What a helpful image, right? Picture a huge lake, a river that's been dammed up to make a reservoir, and then suddenly the dam fails. You can't control where that water's going. You can't predict what damage it will do, and you can't get that water back. It's much easier to start a quarrel than to stop it. And the opposite, it's much easier to prevent a quarrel than to try to resolve it. The rebuke and the counsel of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is helpful here. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Are you willing to lose an argument before it even begins with your spouse or with a friend? Is it really necessary that you prove your right in this case? So what are some ways we keep that dam in place? What are, what are some ways in Proverbs we prevent that flood of a fight from breaking loose? 
One way is just keep quiet. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. A prudent man conceals dishonor. The ESV actually captures that second phrase, the meaning better. A prudent man ignores insult. Hmm. So a wise person, a humble person, sometimes just lets the offense go. No response needed. As we've already seen, they feel no need to defend themselves or to prove that they're right. But sometimes something must be said. So, the second way to avoid a quarrel is to answer gently. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Hebrew is so instructive here. A harsh word, singular. One harsh word. And it intensifies the conflict. Right? So if you'll allow me to switch metaphors from the flood to the fire. We don't want to throw the gasoline of a harsh word on this fire. Okay? We want to throw the water of a gentle answer. And I was reminded of the power of a gentle answer recently, painfully reminded, because I was the one being the proud fool (laughs) again. I was angry. I don't even remember about what. Probably didn't get my way about something that day. And we're driving home, and I'm giving Joyce those short answers in a harsh tone. And she got quiet, and out of the corner of my eye, I see her eyes tearing up. Oh, that's the worst. And then she calmly asked me, but with hurt in her voice, why do you talk to me like that? That was the faithful wound of one who loves that cuts all the way to the heart. She could have spoken harshly back to me. She could have returned fire, and things would have escalated. But that quiet question completely disarmed me and forced me to see the ugliness of my behavior, my sinful speech. So in the pursuit of peace, a humble person sometimes says nothing and other times speaks softly. All right, so the humble friend that we want to be, the humble spouse we want to be, isn't easily angered and instead seeks peace, but also we receive correction. This is one of the primary ways that we grow in humility. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, yes, God reproves us through his word. But oftentimes that correction comes through a friend or a spouse applying God's Word to the sin they've just observed in us. Again, C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility, he quotes Paul David Tripp who says, Our self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. 
I don't know if you've been to a carnival and you've walked in that hall of mirrors and you walk up to that mirror and your head looks about that big around and your body is three times its normal size. That's how we see ourselves. I am blind to some sin that others see clearly in me. And some of the stuff I do see I'm too soft on and I'm an expert at excusing and so are you. So how silly to be offended when somebody thinks that they see something in me more clearly than I see it. You and I need friends, we said this last week, who are willing to risk our anger to tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. We looked at this last week, Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. So a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. That word counsel is literally counsel of soul. Counsel of soul. It's heartfelt. It is sincere counsel. They know you, okay? They know your personality. They know your priorities in life. They care deeply about you. They have your best interest at heart. And their correction should be sweet to you. We should make it easy for them to correct us. Do you ever hear somebody say, I just want a friend or I just want a spouse who will let me be myself? realize that's the absolute worst thing we could do for our spiritual growth? Just let you be yourself. Gordon MacDonald points this out helpfully. He said, quote, there is a certain niceness to friendship where I can be myself, but what I really need are relationships in which I will be encouraged to become better than myself. Myself needs to grow a little each day. I don't want to be the myself I was yesterday. I want to be the myself that is developing each day to be more like Christ. Do you want to be wise? Listen to the correction of your friend or your spouse. Even if it's not communicated perfectly with just the right words or just the right attitude, it is still truth in what they're trying to say. Listen. Your spiritual health depends on it. Proverbs 15, verse 31. He whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Vaughn Roberts has a great little book on friendship dealing with a lot of these verses, and he has help, three helpful responses when a friend corrects you. Expect it, examine it, endure it. Expect it. You know sin still wages war against the Spirit in you. Don't be so shocked when your friend points it out. Examine it. Before you rush to defend yourself, consider the truthfulness of what they've said, and then endure it. Even if you feel the rebuke is unfair, don't resent it. Appreciate their attempt to care for your soul. 
Speaking of enduring it, that brings us to our last display of humility in relationships, and the highest one. We've seen that a humble friend, they're not easily angered. We seek peace. We receive correction. And lastly, we forgive wrongs. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Rather than angry retaliation, we take the cloth of forgiveness and we pull it over the offense and hide the sin against us. That's what love does. And how are we able to do that? Well, reflecting regularly on two truths will help us respond that way. Reflecting on the justice of God, there is a day coming when every wrong will be made right. And if that person who wronged you is a child of God, well, God's going to discipline. If they're not a child of God, perfect justice is coming. And there's no need for you to fight for your own imperfect justice. But you know there's a higher motive, don't you? Reflecting on the grace of God. You and I deserve that perfect justice. And instead, we've been given grace. And a saint who is aware of the justice they deserve and the grace they've been given will be quick to show that grace. Proverbs 19.11, our last proverb for the day, I promise. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is, it is his glory to overlook a transgression. A man's discretion is slow anger. That word means good sense, okay? It makes good sense. It's practically beneficial to be slow to anger. But it is your glory. Literally, that word is beauty. It is morally beautiful to overlook a wrong. Why? Why is it beautiful? Because it's one of the highest reflections of God's character in us to forgive wrongs. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Oh, that verse is good news for proud sinners. Not only does it call us to forgive others, but it highlights God's forgiveness of us. I don't know about you, but Proverbs has pointed out some evidence of pride and anger in me. How about you? And yet we saw how much God detests it because our pride challenges His lordship and corrupts His good creation, and our pride deserves wrath. But God is humble. And God humbled Himself to pursue friendship with us by becoming one of us. 
fulfilling a perfect life that we were supposed to live and failed to do so, and then suffering the justice we were supposed to receive. Why? So He could cover over our sins with the blood and righteousness of Christ, and our relationship could be restored. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ yet, will you respond humbly in repentance and faith to His humble love? Will you come to Him this morning? And if you are a follower of Christ, is there any higher aspiration in life than to reflect His beautiful humility in all of our relationships? Let's pray. Oh, God, what, what a hard topic to pull back our heart and to expose those dark places where pride lurks and where it so often boils to the surface in various ways. God, we do grieve our pride. We do fear it, but not enough yet, Lord. Would Your Spirit intensify those feelings of of grief and hatred for our own pride, for the dishonor that it does to You, for the damage it does to our own lives and to those that we love around us. And God, go to work by Your Holy Spirit, making us more like Your beautiful, humble Son. Lord, making us gladly self-forgetful and sacrificially servant-hearted to those around us. Oh, for, for the glory of Your name, God, to be witnesses of Your work in the lives of sinners. And Lord, for the blessing of those that we interact with day by day. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.